Hey, if you, if you need a Bible, and we would like you to have a Bible this morning, uh, Tom is in the back. He's holding them up. So raise your hand, and we will hand deliver you a Bible right now on the spot. If you have a device, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be going all over the place this morning in God's Word, but um, we're going to begin in Matthew 1, and that is the ESV version if you have a device. So we're in our fourth week of our Advent series, Advent meaning coming, and for our you know, intents and purposes, the coming of Jesus, what we've been waiting for and what we've been anticipating. And uh, the series really has has come around this idea of the, the story that God wrote and the, and the characters that God used to write his story. And specifically for, for our purposes, the story of the birth of Christ. And we started all the way back in our first week, which wasn't really that long ago, it feels like it, which with the, with the character of Joseph, who was the adopted father of Jesus. And we saw um, just a man who found himself in a place where he was not given the life that he expected And he was in conflict, and yet we see God using uh, this carpenter uh, to be the adopted father of Jesus and to uh, basically extend his faithfulness to a man who was faithful in obeying what God had laid out for him. And then the next week, we looked at the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah, this Jewish priest, and his wife who were not able to conceive And they went through years, basically a lifetime of infertility until they were visited by an angel who said, you know what, God has heard your prayers. And not only that, but he's answered your prayers. And you're going to conceive and give birth to a man that you're going to name John. Of course, we know him as John the Baptist. And this is the one that Isaiah the prophet prophesied about that would prepare the way for Jesus. He would prepare the people for the coming of Christ. And then uh, Pastor Jeff, last week, he took us through uh, King Herod, this, this maniac. Um, and we talked about Herod as being the villain of Christmas. And what we understand about Herod, who was this guy that felt threatened by the birth of Jesus and went uh, just on this rampage of murder, killing all of these young children two years and under, is that God can't be thwarted. So when God has a plan and a purpose, even an evil king isn't strong enough, lacks ability to come against what God has set out and what God will do. And so this morning we're going to look at really the stories of four women uh, in Scripture that you probably don't hear a lot about, but these are four women who dealt with some issues and some life struggles, to say the least, that some of you may feel really, really, uh, that might be really relatable to some of you. And um, what we're going to see is how God uniquely moved in their stories. And then also why God would have even used uh, these particular people uh, to lead through into forming the line, the family line that led to Christ. Um, So my grandpa, uh, a man that we like to call Pops, or liked to call Pops, I should say, was a genealogist, which is as fun as that sounds. Okay, Um, now this was years before, you know, all the Ancestor stuff, right? So this is years before Ancestry.com, before 23andMe, which made discovering your family history like the thing that it is now. So you were in massive trouble when uh, Pops came over on a holiday and had a stack of papers, like thicker than a fruitcake, 
to show you just who you were related to, right? Um, the thing about genealogies, though, is that most of us, we're, we're kind of interested, right? We're interested to find out if we're related to anybody famous, right? Anybody that's done something, you know, of note in the past, you know, we don't mind being attached to that man or woman. What we're not interested in is everybody else, right? And it just doesn't carry a lot of interest for us, right? We, we wanted to have some sort of a celebrity, you know, mark for us, right? But genealogies, um, they can feel kind of impersonal, right? So when Pops would slap down that book's worth of years worth of work that he did for me alone that unfortunately at 13 I wasn't incredibly interested in, all of it just felt impersonal. It felt like a list of just random names and unknown people. What I didn't realize was that it was actually much more than that because for every name there's what? Well, for every name, there's a story, and those stories really are like prefaces to our own stories. But the one thing we might be most concerned about when it comes to our own story is what? Well, it's the ending. It's the ending of the story. We desire an ending that is worth living for and worth hoping for. That's what we want. That's what you want. That's what I want. It's why we're always so concerned about the endings of our movies. It's why we're always so concerned about the endings of the books we read and why we're so disappointed when those endings, when they just absolutely fail to meet our expectations, right? So right now, because it's Christmas, it means there's a new Star Wars movie out, right? And people are putting a lot of hope in the final Star Wars movie, right? The rise of Skywalker to meet their expectations, right? To tie a, just the satisfying bow on what is probably the most iconic uh, but criticized movie franchise in history, right? People want an ending to end all the strife in the Star Wars galaxy. That's what they want. And if you go on social media, you'll find out how disappointed they are that they either got it or they didn't get it depending on who you're talking to. But when we come to a genealogy in the Bible, which we're going to in a minute here, um, we have some different thoughts. You know what our first thought usually is? Um, is it wrong to skip this part, right? That's usually what we think when it comes to genealogy. But these are stories, right? These are stories of, uh, of, of people. And they're stories of people that God wanted us to pay attention to in sort of the grand narrative that he has been writing. So today we're going to just really briefly unpack the stories, like I said earlier, four women that Matthew included in his gospel as he introduced the birth of Christ. So let's pick up just right here off the top, Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to go through verse 6, and this is what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Are you guys pumped that I'm done at verse 6 right now? 
Because I'm, I'm just, you know, I can just keep reading this whole thing, and I think we're all going to be real, like, stoked about that. But I'm going to stop right at verse 6 right there. So if you caught it, um, the names of the women, the four women that we just read, were these four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And before we take a little bit more of an intimate look into their lives, it, it probably would be helpful to know that it would have been considered a surprising move for Matthew to include these women in his genealogy, right? Uh, Daniel Darling, uh, he's, a, he's a writer and a pastor. He said this, he said, listen, a woman had no legal rights and was completely subject to her woman's power in this age. To put it bluntly, it would be scandalous for Matthew to put these women's names in here, and these weren't just any women. Each of them had carried with them a stigma, an asterisk next to their name every time a faithful Jewish person heard their name read out louder in the synagogue. So it's interesting and it's intriguing if you get into the history of genealogies that Matthew would have even included, that God would have inspired him to include the names of these four women. So the questions that we're going to attempt to answer this morning are this. Why would God have inspired Matthew to include these women? Secondly, what do their stories tell us about the family line that God chose for Christ's birth? And then finally, what does it all, what does it all mean for us? So let's, let's dive in. Let's unpack. Let's go back to Genesis 38. Like I said, we're just going to do some breeze-throughs of these stories because we don't have time to read every single one of them. But we're going to start with Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. So if we were to read the entire story, this is what we would know. It's that Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, this is what happened. He had an adulterous affair that produced three sons, one of whom was named Ur. Now, Ur married a woman named Tamar. But Scripture tells us that this dude, this Ur guy, was wicked, and so the Lord put him to death. We weren't told what he did, but just that he was wicked. Now, the custom was that the brother of the deceased was to take his brother's wife and raise up offspring from her. It doesn't happen anymore. So this is something that went out a long time ago. All of you guys who are thinking about like marrying your brother-in-law someday, if that ever happens, don't sweat it. We don't do that anymore. But it's what happened right here. And so Ur's brother Onan then comes into the picture, but he refuses to meet his obligations. So the Lord puts him to death as well, right? So then we have Judah's other son, Shelah, who finally comes of age. He was a little bit younger than these other brothers. But when he finally comes of age to marry Tamar, Judah's forgotten all about her. And she's just left alone and she's left destitute. So what we understand about Tamar here is that this is a woman who has suffered through a series of wicked, uncaring, and neglectful men. So in her desperation, what does Tamar do? Well, she disguises herself as a prostitute. And her father-in-law, a man with such high integrity, a guy named Judah, ends up getting her pregnant without knowing it's his daughter-in-law. I was being facetious about the integrity part. It's a wicked story if you read the whole story, Genesis 38. Here's how it ends in verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more 
righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Then verse 27, it says, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and she, when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So Judah's shameful actions are eventually found out, and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, gives birth to twins. So that's the first woman in our story that somehow ties into the family line of Christ. Let's move forward to the book of Joshua. Joshua, you're going to go up about five or six books, past Judges, to Joshua chapter 2. Just take your time. I'm struggling just like you to get there. Joshua 2. I'm just going to pick up with verse 1. And it says this, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the, men, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order, out, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Joshua here sends spies to scout the city of Jericho, and they go to the house of Rahab. And what does Rahab do? Well, she hides the spies from the king in exchange for a promise that they'll keep her safe when they return to attack the city. And that's what happens, by the way. The army comes back, they attack the city, but they keep Rahab and her family safe. So she keeps her promise. Her family is spared from destruction. Now, it's easy for us to write off a woman like Rahab because of her vocation just like it probably would have been when we learn about the story of Tamar. But it's actually better to understand Rahab as someone who was preyed upon, as somebody who was exploited, as somebody who was attacked and assaulted and taken advantage of regularly as the result of her situation that she was in. So we want to remember who Rahab is. We want to remember who Tamar is. We want to see them through the right kinds of lens. Let's just keep journeying forward. Let's turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a couple of books up. Ruth chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'm just going to start reading. And it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, and they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, but then both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. What's unique about the story of Ruth, if we were to keep reading, is that she's not a Jewish woman. She's included in God's family line for Christ, but she's not a Jewish woman, but was part of a race of people called the Moabites who were absolutely despised by the Jewish people. So to be included in this genealogy shows us that God, well, he's not oblivious to an outsider like Ruth. And what happens to Ruth is she travels back with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem, where she eventually meets a man named Boaz who falls in love with her, who is kind to her, who marries her, and they have a child named Obed who becomes the grandfather of David, the great king of Israel. So we need to understand Ruth as someone who came from a race that was despised by the Jewish people who could have been looked down upon, who was likely marginalized, but was included by God in the family line of Christ. And finally, let's go to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You know what? You don't need to turn there. But this is the story of Bathsheba. And the story of Bathsheba might be the most well-known story for many of us that have grown up maybe in church circles. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was one of King David's top military men. And while the men were out fighting during this one particular season, David decided not to go with them. He decided to stay home. He took advantage of his position as king. And he ends up assaulting Bathsheba. He ends up forcing her to sleep with him. And then he had Uriah, her husband, killed when he found out that she was pregnant. Now, most of us have heard this story preached as a story of a man like David who just was caught in an adulterous affair. And that's not untrue, but that's also the churchy, sanitized version of the story. Because make no mistake, Bathsheba was a vulnerable woman who suffered horribly at the hands of an abuser. That's really what's going on in here when you start understanding the dynamics of power and the kind of hold and the kind of power that David would have had over a woman like Bathsheba. Now again, man, we just really just glazed the surface of the stories of these four women, which by the way contain just a massively, massively deep and really unsettling storyline. So what do these stories of these women have to do with the story of Christ's birth? How are they connected? Well, simply put, each of them gave birth to a child that eventually led to the birth of Christ. Well, then on that note, what's important then for us to know about the stories behind these women? Well, here's a few things. As we look at Tamar, this is what we know. We know that she was forgotten by the person who should have cared for her the most. And some of you have stories like that this morning. 
Some of you have stories that are so filled with shame that you think God has rightly forgotten you. You think he could never forgive you because you have gone too far. But what we learn about Tamar here is that God is faithful to the forgotten people of society. Psalm 68, David himself reminds us that God is father of the fatherless. He's protector of widows. This is God in his holy habitation. So this reminds us how we are to think about the character of God when we hear the stories or we think about our own stories of people that have done things to us out of their neglect for us. Tamar reminds us that God is faithful to the forgotten. When we go to Rahab, we also learn something about God's character. We learn that God has sympathy for sinners. We learn that God honors the face of those who've been subjected to suffering at the hands of injustice, at the hands of cruelty and harm beyond their control. If you go to the book of Hebrews, the writer writes about Rahab. This is what he says. He says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute does not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then in the book of James, James, the brother of Jesus, he says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So God is faithful to those that have been forgotten by those who are unfaithful in the way that we would describe them in society. But he also has sympathy for those who we would consider sinners. And by the way, people we would consider sinners are us, categorically in the same exact place. But the character of God is that he has sympathy. And for somebody like Rahab who acted in faith, he honored that. And he showed his sympathy and faithfulness to her. When we look at Ruth, what do we see? But that God is not oblivious to the outsiders. What's unique about Ruth is that she's not a Jewish woman. But she was part of a race of people that were despised. We talked about that earlier. So to be included in this genealogy shows us that God is not oblivious. He doesn't turn a blind eye to people that we might think, that society might think, are outsiders in the world. But he drafts them in to the family of faith. Do you feel like an outsider? In all the multitude of ways that you can feel like an outsider. Is that you? Does that describe you? Do you have a family background that fills you with shame to even think about? Does it make you think when you come even into the church that you're somebody that you don't even know could be accepted because of the place and position you feel like it's put you in? Does that describe you? Maybe like Ruth, you're a first generation Christian. You look, in, you, look in your family, you look in your family tree and you don't see anybody that would have carried on the faith. You don't see anybody that handed over the mantle of faith to you. You're the first one that God has saved, but yet it's put you in a position of feeling like there's nobody surrounding you. Then we get to Bathsheba and we understand that God hears the voice of the vulnerable. 
And what we need to understand about Bathsheba is that her life would never be the same after being abused by King David. Her husband Uriah was murdered. She became the wife of David, an unfaithful husband, and eventually suffers the loss of a son. In addition to all of that, by the way, her reputation would likely have been tarnished forever by the scandal. Are there parts of Bathsheba's story that resonate with you this morning? People who maybe have grievously sinned against you and put you in a position of vulnerability like Bathsheba? See, those are all important questions for us to ask in this context, right? Three days before Christmas, when everything should be merry and bright. Because these are real stories of real people that apply in the most real of ways to us. We're not disconnected from all of this. Some of us have written our own stories. It's true. Some of us have stories that have been written for us by others. But here's what we know about the grace and mercy of God this morning, is that God writes a new ending. God writes a new ending. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, all the way to the New Testament. Pass the book of Romans to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Because when we look at stories, what we're looking at, and specifically with these four women, is we're looking at people that have pasts. That's all of you here. You may even be young. It doesn't matter. Because you still have a past. And so when we look at stories of men or women in Scripture that don't have a storyline that would make anything other than the National Enquirer, we have to understand that they have a past just like we have a past. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote for those of us with a past. He said, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this, Paul says, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he kind of tells us what he means by that. He says that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins, their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What Paul is saying here is that in Jesus, your story can be the ending you hope for but have no hope of writing for yourself. These women show the grace and mercy of a God who redeems and reverses our stories to such a degree that all the hardships we're made to endure will be worth it because they'll seem small in comparison with knowing Jesus. Only in Jesus do you have an ending worth living for and a hope worth hoping for. And here's something you all know. Family is really hard 
around the holidays. And obviously, I mean with the exception of my family who's sitting in the first row right now. <laughs> but in like a day, if it's not already happening right now, most of us will be reminded of the brokenness that exists in our families when we're together and we're walking on the eggshells of religion and politics, disagreements that have remained unreconciled for years, and open wounds that have never been closed. I mean, if you want to argue with me about that, I think I'll have the rest of the church on my side. Sam Alberry says this. He says, the family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. Dude, this is all of us, right? And what these beloved women of God, and by the way, these were beloved women of God. What they remind us of is that Jesus has a seat as his table for those with stories that nobody wants to talk about around our own dinner tables. Jesus created something. He created a new and a lasting legacy for us to be a part of. Now, again, that doesn't mean our family legacies are worth nothing. It just means that in Christ, you are a part of a new family that's worth everything. What we see in the stories of these women is God's faithfulness to bring his son into the world through a family line that is just like your family line, a complete disaster. God is not against the forgotten, the sinners, the outsiders, the vulnerable. It's the opposite. He uses those who would say, who we would say, who society would say are in most need of his grace, and he elevates them to places of honor. God not only sees us, but by sending Jesus, he stooped down to be with us. Do you hear what I'm saying? In Christ, God drew near to us the brokenhearted. Because here's the thing, if you're on social media and you constantly get your mind wrapped up in everything that's going on, man, there's so many things that are problematic, right? As a Christian, there's so many problematic things. Let's just take one. Human suffering is problematic. But without Jesus, human suffering is not only problematic, it's symptomatic of an inescapable hopelessness. But Jesus was sent by God to enter human suffering for human sufferers. Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed So the story of Jesus, it it helps us see suffering as not a story God is the author of, but as a story he has written a new ending for. Because suffering will someday end for all those who place their trust in a suffering Savior. Because, man, we shake our heads and we shake our fists at God for human suffering. Not realizing that God became a human to suffer for justice we deserved 
so that we might have a new ending that we have never deserved. The truth is this. You can spend your whole life trying to get the ending you want. To which I will ask, how is that going for you? But you can spend your whole life trying to get the ending you want, or you can spend your life knowing the ending God has already secured for you. Now here's the danger. If you are having a hard time relating to the stories of these women, and you walk away writing this off as a sermon for somebody else, well, the first thing is is that you're casting a blind eye towards those who do relate directly to this story and who are sitting right next to you, who actually need to understand what it means to not be forgotten and to have sympathy and understanding and care from Christ through you. So although the stories of these four women might not directly relate to you, I would say they far more profoundly relate to you if you just look to your left or look to your right. Because they profoundly relate to many in our congregation. And they need to know and to understand the love and the mercy and the grace of Christ through you. And then secondly, you might need to repent of your self-righteousness, believing that your story is cleaner than these stories. Because it's not. Because it's not any cleaner. It may look a little shinier on the outside, but on the inside, it's all brokenness. It's all the same brokenness and suffering and sin that God sent Jesus to bear on the cross. Dorsey Swindle, she writes this. Those who weep at Christmas in hospital beds, in empty homes, in shelters, in family conflict or loneliness are not marginalized from experiencing the purpose of Christmas because of their circumstance. Rather, the magnificence of experiencing the joy of Christmas is actually made more deeply available to sufferers because of pain. We have mistaken the purpose of Christmas as celebrating a break or a holiday from suffering. But the purpose of Christmas is to celebrate a God who entered into our suffering to be with us. Emmanuel, born as a baby, became like us to be with us, to die for us, to restore us to our maker. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the story that you're writing for us has always included a new ending that we are unable to write for ourselves. So God, we come to you realizing that if we look back on 2019, a lot of us have purpose to write those endings, to be the author of our own stories, to perform all the self-edits 
that we can do. And yet it hasn't left us with a life worth living or hope worth hoping for. Lord, as we consider the stories of these four women that you included in this genealogy so that we wouldn't miss it, Lord, we thank you for bringing it to our attention. We thank you that the ways that they have suffered are not any different than the ways that we see women suffering today. And so, God, we pray that the reality of this, the truth of this, the truth that we live in a world that still succumbs to this kind of pain and suffering, God, that we wouldn't cast a blind eye towards it, but we would seek it out. We would seek justice for it. We would surround ourselves as a church around those who have been forgotten, who have been sinned against, who are vulnerable. And Lord, we would embrace them with the love and the assurance and the security of Christ. And God, for those of us who find ourselves in that place, God, we pray that your peace and your assurance and your comfort would come down on us again this morning. God, that we would remember that you sent your son to suffer for the sufferers so that our suffering wouldn't be meaningless. But that would be the occasion for hope. And so, God, in all this, we thank you and we praise you. We rejoice in you for the coming of Christ, for everything that not only it represents to us as we still anticipate and we await the day, but what it accomplished for us, which was joy and peace and a future worth living for. Thank you that in Christ we have that. Lord, would you convict those of us who need to repent of our sins, who need to come back to you, who need to come back and say, God, you're still my God, you're still my salvation. God, would you make us new again this morning? Would you refresh us, renew us? Would you revitalize and revive our hearts, Lord? God, we need you today. So be in our presence Meet us in this place, Lord. We ask in Christ's name.